Thought Leadership from PwC. Welcome to PwC's Accounting Podcast. I'm Heather Horn. If you're trying to change investment behavior and change carbon emissions in the economy, the the relative measure isn't so much the actual carbon price, it's the differential between doing it the green way and doing it the business as usual way. Many of you have likely heard that President Biden signed the Inflation Reduction Act into law on Tuesday, August 16th. This historic bill features about $370 billion in spending and tax incentives on energy and other climate change provisions. These provisions are intended to spur investment not only by traditional energy companies, but also by companies in sectors including transportation, real estate, and manufacturing. In addition, they include significant enhancements if the projects meet certain wage, domestic content, and location requirements. So, the Climate Bill is not just about E, but also tackles some social issues. There's a lot in this bill, but today's podcast will focus just on some of the ESG-related themes. We'll have a number of other resources and upcoming publications and webcasts on the other implications, so definitely look for those in the show notes, as well as in our weekly newsletter that you can sign up for at viewpoint.pwc.com. I'm happy to welcome back to the podcast today, Casey Herman, PwC's U.S. ESG leader, and joining him is Matt Haskins, a principal in PwC's Washington National Tax Services office, where he focuses on renewable energy financing. Also, just one quick side note before we get started. So there was a major presence of helicopter noise in my background for most of our sessions, something going on in my neighborhood. But rather than reschedule the podcast, we did our best to clean it up because we wanted to get this timely content in your hands as soon as possible. We've got so much to cover, so let's get started. Matt, Casey, thanks so much for joining me to talk about the just signed into law Inflation Reduction Act. So it's definitely been a big past few weeks uh, seeing this deal come together and then get signed. But I thought to start things off, we should rewind because one of the things that interested me was when I spoke to Matt and Casey early on about what was going on. Matt Matt made a reference to this going all the way back to 2010. And I thought that would be very interesting level setting for our audience. So Matt, where did this come from? Thanks, Heather. Uh, no, it, it's it's absolutely true. I think I think a lot of people, particularly who've been following the Inflation Reduction Act in the press, think of this as a deal that sort of materialized three or four weeks ago. But really, the roots of it go, do go all the way back to 2010. And I'd actually wind back to 2009. If you recall, in 2009, when the Obama administration took office. Um, along with healthcare reform, their other big priority was getting a national cap and trade program that would put a price on greenhouse gas emissions. Um, for a variety of reasons we won't explore, because that would be an entire separate podcast series, that effort failed in 2009. And then starting in 2010, a lot of people who had interest in this space and interest in trying to figure out what the alternatives were for getting the United States on a path to lower carbon emissions started looking at the incentive side. So, you know, again, starting in the mid 2010s, you started seeing proposals like proposals for uh, technology neutral credits. 
that incentivize based on the amount of reduction from business as usual in the production of electricity or the production of fuels. And then a lot of those proposals were sort of further developed and reflected in the House Green Act, which was introduced at the beginning of the current congressional session in 2021. And then most of those proposals made their way into Build Back Better, which we all heard about last year. So when, you know, at some level, it looked like people emerged from some sort of darkened room on the Senate, and this bill happened overnight in the last week of July, what they were really doing was picking up and assembling building blocks of legislative language that had been around for over a decade. And in fact, most of the provisions that got enacted yesterday in the Inflation Reduction Act haven't changed that much since the Build Back Better version or the, even the Green Act version from two years ago. Yeah, Matt, it always it strikes me as interesting that there's a little bit of a policy change in that, you know, historically, uh, carbon reduction has a little bit been based upon a stick, right? Let's put a tax on carbon. Let's let's make the, uh, you know, a cap and trade program, but let's find a way to penalize people for emitting carbon, where this act has really been much more of a carrot. Let's incentivize the construction and the implementation of lower carbon technologies. Let's make it more affordable for communities to invest in uh, equitable allocation of these new technologies. And it, it feels like a much more attractive um, approach to, to go with a carrot versus a stick. Absolutely right. I mean, given a choice between a plate full of carrots and a plate full of sticks, most people would prefer to eat the plate full of carrots. And to me, the way you get there is probably less important than what we're focusing on what we're really trying to do here. And, and you know, some th these incentives are also sort of a form of carbon price. If you think about it, they're almost like a negative carbon price, right? You get rewarded for doing something that's greener. Because what if you're trying to change investment behavior and change carbon emissions in the economy, the, the relative measure isn't so much the actual carbon price, it's the differential between doing it the green way and doing it the business as usual way. And you can, you can change that differential either through pricing emissions through a carbon tax or cap and trade, or by providing incentives for the greener technologies. And then obviously in this political environment, it's been easier to um, take the incentive-based approach. I suspect a lot of our colleagues um, you know, in other countries are probably going to be taking a look at this piece of legislation too, um, to see how they might supplement their own approaches, which historically have been a little more price-based. Yeah. And even more exciting is not only is there a carrot for low-carbon technologies, there's an even bigger carrot maybe with ranch dressing on it if you construct those technologies in the U.S., and and maybe you get you know a cupcake for dessert if you cite some of those construction <laughs> facilities where uh, there used to be uh, fossil fuel intensive operations or coal based operations. So I know we're going to get into all this later, but it, it's it's uh, I think a, a, a smartly designed set of incentives to get an outcome that that not only is cleaner but also more domestic. Yeah, and I, I think that's a. You know, that's, that is a theme we'll probably get into in a little more detail. Historically, people have looked at all of these incentives in the tax code as being environmental incentives, right? E, the E and ESG. But as you pointed out, the way these new incentives are crafted, the social component, the S part of ESG, um, really comes to the forefront because it matters not only what type of project you do or what type of technology you deploy. It matters where you do it. And it matters how you do it, how you staff the project. 
Let me jump in here because I do want to get to social, but I want to slightly rewind and then go a little in a different direction. And it actually goes to the conversation you were both just having about sort of the carrots and the sticks and, you know, you're going to have dessert and everything else. But the, the question really that I have is one of the things I was reading as we were you know, looking at sort of the difference between incentives versus penalties would be that the incentives will really spur you know, innovation. And so if you knew forevermore, you were never going to, let's say, have cheaper renewable power or, you know, any of these other new technologies, then maybe you wouldn't frame it with these incentives. But one of the goals here is that we're going to actually develop new technologies and otherwise. And so Matt, I would like to run through um, some of the the major themes in the law. And in particular, I was just curious if there were particular places where you see that you think we will maybe see some innovation coming out of this. Sure. So, you know, there, there's a dozen credits in this bill, at least a dozen. I may have lost track. But I think the best way to sort of think about them is think about them as concerted efforts to get to a lower carbon economy in four major areas in energy and power generation, in transportation, um, in industrial production, and then in real estate. Maybe I'll just spend a minute or two on each of those. So there's, there are new credits in this bill for clean energy generation. So they, it extends current tax credits through 2024 and then transitions to those technology neutral credits we discussed starting in 2025. There's also new credits for nuclear energy um, and some other lower carbon technologies. And one of the great things about this bill is that everything in it lasts for 10 years. Under current law, people have been having to look at phase-down dates and worrying about when construction started on things because the credits have always been sort of on the verge of phasing out. You know, companies now have a 10-year window to plan capital investments. Give you a couple of examples of places where I think that you know, you will see some significant activity, not necessarily technological innovation, but rapid technological adoption. So, for example, um, the investment tax credits now expanded to include what's called standalone storage. So, think of a big battery array um, built just as a battery project, but to, you know, say, store power from a, a solar farm or a wind farm, you know, so that it can be 24-7 power rather than intermittent. I think you're going to see a lot of development activity in standalone storage. Another area that where I think you're going to see a lot of activity, and it, it was frankly sort of a baffling hole in the existing patchwork of incentives, is for um, renewable natural gas. Um, so there are you know people out there who make biogas um, sort of substitutes for for natural gas under prior law. You got tax credits if you burned it to create electricity, but you didn't get tax credits if you just fed it into the natural gas pipeline system as a one-to-one -one replacement for natural gas. That's gone away. Um, so people are going to have more, you know, they'll, they'll be able to do what makes sense from an economic perspective and not just chasing the tax credits. Maybe clean energy transportation is not another huge theme in this bill. And there, I group both the electric vehicle incentives, which have gotten a ton of attention in the popular press, and then also a lot of renewable fuels incentives, which haven't gotten as much attention in the press, but I think are equally important for forms of transportation that are not easily electrified. The EV credits are designed in a way, you know, as Casey pointed out, to encourage job creation in the United States, right? The, the new EV credits are available only for vehicles where final assembly occurs in the U.S. 
Treasury literally issued guidance yesterday afternoon, an hour after the president signed the bill about the EV credits, because they know there's a ton of consumer interest in what car can I buy this week that qualifies versus what car could I buy last week that qualified. It's also, I think, going to be a game changer for a lot of our corporate clients that those EV incentives are are available for heavier commercial vehicles and maybe even for vehicles that are used off-road. I've had a lot of early conversations with folks who are looking at sort of at what pace they want to electrify their fleet. And one suspects that the tax incentives will help them accelerate that pace. Coming back to the um, alternative fuels, again, all the biofuels credits were things that had been on this sort of tax extender treadmill and getting you know drip extended year over year. Just having some certainty in that area, I think, is going to be a big help to a lot of people, as well as the transition to a technology-neutral um, clean fuels credit in 2025. Another one that I think is going to be big is um, sustainable aviation fuel. Electric airplanes are a pretty new technology. You can't fly that many people in an electric airplane and keep it in the air. Um, so a lot of uh, aviation companies, you know, think your passenger airlines, you know, air shipping companies are looking at, you know, can, can we use sustainable aviation fuel, jet fuel? Um, and there's a, new, there's a new credit to spur the widespread adoption of that um, that I think is going to be very significant. Um, and then, you know, if you're talking about sort of new generation technology, the credits in the bill for clean hydrogen are, are of very significant interest to folks. Um, I think, you know, there's, there's going to be a lot of technology development in that area over the next five years. Third area we talk about is, um, you know, cleaner, greener industrial production. Um, and there I, I sort of group both carbon capture right? The, the credits in the bill for capturing carbon from industrial production processes and putting it into secure geologic storage. Those credits have been there. They've been topped up by Congress once. Uh, this bill tops them up again to $85 per ton for secure geologic storage. And again, if you're looking at for kind of like a really innovative or sort of groundbreaking technology, direct air capture, literally taking carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere to capture it and then sequester it underground. That's still a pre-commercial technology. A lot of folks are experimenting with it, but there's a credit in the code now at $180 a ton. So the first tech developers who sort of get that right are going to have a real prize available to them for getting it right. And that's clearly you know, I think a policy intention is to, you know, is to drive development of that technology. And then also in the, you know, kind of the manufacturing space, I think the new credits or the revival of the credit for advanced um, energy manufacturing, right, to kit out plant and equipment. And then um, for th- certain components of wind turbines, solar panels, and batteries, even a production tax credit for producing those goods, those are all going to be significant in driving the theme that you know Casey highlighted about bringing cleaner, greener jobs domestically. Last area, and at the end of this monologue, <laughs> is uh, you know a, a new set of and renewed credits for building energy efficiency. Um, a lot of carbon emissions in a, in the United States arise through building energy use. So anything you can do to incentivize folks to be you know, more conscious of building energy efficiency makes a dent in the problem. And for reasons we can discuss later, those credits and incentives are now more usable by the types of corporate entities that tend to own real estate. 
um, under prior law, real estate investment trusts, which own most of the commercial real estate in the country, didn't really get a lot of benefit from tax credits. So it didn't factor into their decision making that much. All right. So I actually have a few questions on specifics related to a few of those credits and, and why they're so important. But I think, Casey, maybe before we get into that, one of the things I, I know as we've talked about this that's really impactful here is how broad this is. So often you think of climate or energy credits and say, oh, powering utilities, they benefit. But clearly, in this case, it's much broader. And I think the economic impact we're expecting to be much broader. And so can you give a little overall perspective before we, we dig into a few of these? Yeah, absolutely, Heather. And and uh, you're right. I, I believe, and based on what I'm reading from others, this is going to impact almost every segment of the economy. You know, one of the pieces I've read by a uh, an Ivy League energy modeling think tank um, talks about a 10x multiple on infrastructure spending. So if there's 379 or 380 million uh, or billion of tax credits, that could translate into 390 or 3.9 to 4 trillion of infrastructure spending. And if anything, um, you know, if you read this report, that's understating the impact, right? Because there's going to be some exponential effects to some of these credits as as it begins to build the cost curve, bend the cost curve of these technologies, making them even more attractive and more economical compared to other alternatives. You mentioned the breadth of the economy. Well, you know, right now the transportation sector in the U.S. is the largest emitter of carbon and it's only slightly larger than the power sector. And that's because the power sector has invested so heavily in renewable development over the past 15, 20 years that the carbon intensity of electricity production in the U.S. has declined dramatically. Uh, we'll talk a little bit more about that, but that scale up of solar and wind technologies has lowered the cost of those technologies by anywhere uh, from 70 to 90% of the cost since 2009. So in, in about 12 years, 13 years, the cost of building a solar facility has reduced by almost 90%. And, and the cost of, of a wind facility has been reduced by over 70%. And that's likely going to happen to other technologies. But once you get past transportation and energy, as Matt mentioned, real estate is a big piece of this, as is um, industrial processes. So think about making steel, making cement, uh, you know, chemical refinement that refining that that uses a lot of heat and high pressure. Um, these new technologies like carbon capture or green hydrogen uh, become suddenly very economical um, in in those industries. It's, it's certainly. To, to pilot projects. And as those things, as those projects scale up, those, ec those economics will get even better. So this is going to have a huge impact, I think, in the construction industry, in the metals industry, the chemical industry, the agricultural industry. Um, you know, there is a ton of carbon necessary to make um, fertilizer and uh, clean hydrogen. Green hydrogen could be a very viable um, alternative to using natural gas to produce that that um, fertilizer. So this will have a huge impact. And then you think about the fact that 
okay, we're talking about, let's say, $4 trillion of infrastructure investment, of which 10% will be credits. Well, there's going to be equity financing that's going to have to go into this, but there's also going to be leverage and debt financing. And at least in in my industry, in the power industry, it's typically about 50% debt to equity, maybe a little higher on the debt side. So this is a great opportunity for financial services and investors to find uh, relatively um, well-returning projects uh, hopefully at relatively small risk um, that are suddenly economical projects because you're 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 lowering the overall cost. So yeah, I think this is really economic wide. Clearly, um, power production will be um, shaped by this, but so is transportation. So is is global shipping. So is steel and metals and aluminum and cement and concrete. Um, so is chemicals and ag. Uh, so it, it's going to be all over the board in terms of impact, I think. Okay. So it's definitely quite a few follow-up questions there, but actually let me go to Casey and I want to ask a question rewinding to something that Matt talked about. And just to warn you, this is going to test your power and utilities knowledge and your ability to explain it to people easily who may not be familiar with some of the concepts. So one of the things that Matt mentioned is the fact that these large scale standalone storage projects will really help in terms of dealing with the intermittent power that we get from solar and wind. However, I would assume for the vast majority of our listeners that aren't really focused on where their power is coming from when they flip the switch, it's kind of hard to understand why that even matters. So before we go on to go back to some of the credits, can you just give us a brief explanation of why storage is so important as we ramp up renewables? Yeah, absolutely. So um, many people consider the electricity grid the most complicated machine that's ever been made in mankind. And I think what you have to realize is that even with today's battery storage technologies, um, it is very difficult to, to store um, industrial volumes of electricity for long periods of time at a cost, at, at a cost that is um, competitive. Um, and if you can't store electricity, what it means is it has to be produced instantaneously when it's being used. And renewables make that difficult uh, or more challenging because of their in- intermittent nature. Um, you know, when the sun comes up in the morning, suddenly solar comes online and it it displaces other uses or other production facilities of electricity and in some cases, there's so much solar in, in certain parts of the country that it outstrips demand. And and you can't use all the solar that's being produced. Uh, same thing with wind. Wind tends to be more effective at night. Um, uh, so at night, uh, as the breeze picks up in, uh, you know, across the plains and across the southwest, uh, these massive amounts of wind power come online, which means you've got to turn off other plants very quickly. And what's difficult for large industrial scale electric electricity plants, um, whether it's nuclear plants or, or gas combined cycle plants or coal plants, they're hard to ramp up and ramp down. So to the extent that you can take that excess production and store it, um, it means that 
number one, it's available when you need it. So if you're in the Southwest and you have excess power during the day when solar is is clicking along, and then suddenly you have a rainstorm that comes across the solar field or the sun goes down, um, you suddenly can use those batteries to to meet the the, the demand uh, without having to uh, ramp up other plants, um, uh, which is which is damaging to their mechanics. You know, you, you talked about innovation earlier, and I think battery technology right now is fairly evolved, but it doesn't have long duration storage abilities. So a battery can maybe store eight or 10 hours of electricity. It can't store electricity until next week, right, or until next month, and it's limited by its volume. Um, there are new technologies out there that are very cost competitive, hopefully, as they scale up with much longer duration storage. Um, there, there are these iron air batteries that have hundreds of hours of storage capacity. Um, you know, they're not mobile, they're heavy, um, but that's okay if you're doing industrial level or utility scale storage. So to make the grid reliable, um, and, and remember the, 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 the goal for the grid is for it to be nearly 100% reliable, right, which intermittency makes it difficult to to do that because of the ramp-ups and ramp-down, for it to be economical. And, and you know, these incentives will, will lower the cost of storage and other technologies. Um, safe, right, and, and that's, you know, that's really primary and cost-effective. And I, I think that these new investments are going are gonna to be – uh, key to all of it. Now, it is going to take significant investment in transmission because as we ramp up even more solar, even more wind at industrial and utility scale, um, you know, th- those are land intensive and they're, they're dependent upon certain, uh, you know, uh, environmental conditions. So where that, that those resources get built may not be where people are and the energy is needed. So we're going to have to build more transmission. We're going to have to upgrade our distribution system to be able to deal with um, distributed solar um, and distributed storage technologies. These are all technologies that are well-proven and very, very feasible to implement, but it's going to take investment. So Matt, let me go back to you with a question then, because I clued in on that particular incentive because it's one I'm very interested in, but just curious from your perspective, as you've been looking at this act and you are thinking about sort of a typical company that's maybe not directly impacted. So they're not in one of the sectors we talked about, but perhaps they have a net zero goal or some, you know, other commitments that they've made and want to get involved. Involved, let's say, where would you see them potentially being interested in investing? Um, that's a great question, Heather. And I think the answer depends, is going to vary quite a bit company to company. Um, but anybody who has a significant carbon reduction goal or a net zero goal and has sat down to analyze kind of where their carbon footprint sits is probably going to find that the vast majority of it is in energy use you know, fleet slash transport, real estate, and then any manufacturing facilities they have. And again, again, this bill is well-designed. Those are exactly where the incentives are targeted. Um, so let's, let's take, you know, let's again, kind of roll through that quickly. Let's say even you're just a consumer products company. You know, so what, what, what's in this for you? Well, you probably have 
delivery vehicles of some type and maybe quite a few of them, right? You know, some, some companies have thousands of delivery vehicles. Um, so it raises a question of like, now that the EV incentives are in place, um, you know, incentives potentially for hydrogen vehicles, how quickly do you want to move to decarbonizing that fleet? You know, it, and, and, and has that answer changed because of the bill that was signed yesterday? My, my suspicion is for a lot of taxpayers, the answer is going to be yes. You have some sort of production facilities, right? You have warehouse facilities. Um, historically, maybe you've been doing virtual power purchase agreements or some other way of procuring green electrons because it now matters to you and your net zero goal where your electrons come from. But these, these incentives, I think, are going to cause a lot of folks outside of the traditional utilities sector to sort of rethink the build versus buy decision on power. Do, do you want to do more you know, renewables at your own facilities? Do you want to invest directly um, in facilities um, that are being constructed by others? Um, you know, you can maybe see, we'll, we'll talk about the transferability of these tax credits in a minute, um, but it, it's probably only going to take the market about a week and a half to come up with a deal structure where a corporate taxpayer um, buys the tax credits from a renewable energy project along with the renewable energy certificates, right? A, a direct tax credits plus RECs purchase without kind of the other weirdness that comes with a traditional tax equity deal. Um, and then, you know, I think, you, and then again, in the real estate sector, a lot of people have sort of said, okay, those incentives are nice, but my real estate's essentially owned by tax exempts or tax in different parties. But in a world where I can monetize the credits in a different way, maybe I take another look at some of those things. How about, Casey, anything that stands out from your perspective, again, kind of beyond powering utilities, but as you think about some of the other companies you've been talking to and some of their goals that they have? Yeah, it, it's going to be the heavy, it's going to be the larger emitters that are difficult to, to reduce. So um, I think that the aviation industry is probably going to be pretty um, excited about the incentives to produce more sustainable aviation fuel, uh, which helps them meet their goals in a more cost-effective manner. I think, uh, again, metal producers, whether it's steel, aluminum, um, are going to be excited because the idea of um, you know using hydrogen uh, may become much more economical. Um, uh, and the ability to produce green hydrogen uh, probably gets uh, increased here because you're going to get more renewables. Maybe you're going to get more nuclear, uh, which means you can build electrolyzers on site and build hydrogen. Um, uh, so I, I think those industries, I think um, heavy transportation is going to be interested in this. Um, uh, shipping you know, global shipping is very carbon intensive and, you know, pilots are out there and, and, and even beyond pilots, but it's not scaled up in terms of new technologies for fuel sources for, you know, uh, uh, ocean shipping, uh, that, that can potentially become more viable on this. Uh, and I think, uh, the, those, those entities that run fleets of vehicles, of land vehicles, uh, again, uh, there are a number of incentives both for the purchase, but also incentives to lower the cost of the of those vehicles that are going to be produced. So incentives to to lower the cost of the minerals that go into the batteries that go into electric vehicles. Um, uh, you know, 
if you can lower the cost of clean steel then or clean aluminum you know that are used in the chassis and the bodies of those vehicles um, you know again I think this has an exponential effect as you start thinking through it that not only is there an incentive when you buy the vehicle but the cost of the vehicle can be impacted by some of these upstream industrial credits that are available yeah, just think if you see the same decline that you were talking about earlier with, I think you were talking about solar prices, if we saw the same thing, or solar, you saw the same thing with vehicles. So Matt, let me go back to something that you mentioned, and there was a few places when you were running through the credits where you either said, oh, look, this is extended, or this is different, like we have this credit, but now there's a change to it. And then, of course, some of these credits are new. So broad-based, I know there's a lot of different credits, but how, what are we seeing is different from this sort of new group of credits or the changes versus maybe the more traditional credits that we've had? Yeah, I, I, I would, I would sort of group the, 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 the new developments in this, in the credits into sort of three categories. One is the move from what I would refer to as cubbyhole credits to outcome-based credits. And what do I mean by that? So in the clean electricity space and in the clean transportation fuel space, Historically, we've had credits where, you know, if you use X technology with whatever the standards are defined in the statute, you get Y credit. The post-2025 world, what we're going to see is a statute that says, if you use A technology that results in zero carbon electricity or a zero carbon fuel, then you get this credit. Um, and the, the idea is that the credit basically stays abreast of technological innovation so that Anybody who develops a new technology does not have to put on their immediate to-do list, run to Capitol Hill and get the statute. That's one big change. The second change, I think, is to um, is more, Casey mentioned it, upstream incentives. Most of our incentives, you know, prior to yesterday were for the, were downstream, for the purchasers of greener stuff, for the people who put, you know, wind and solar farms into service. Um, more of these credits are at the manufacturing phase, right? They're upstream at the production phase. And, and then when you look at the job and apprenticeship requirements that go with unlocking the full value of the credits, it's a clear policy intention to keep more of the supply chain for these goods in the United States. That's new. That's different. Um, and then the third thing, I guess, is, you know, what, for lack of a better term, I'll call almost like a couple of moonshot type of credits. Um, you know, I mentioned the direct air capture for you know, carbon capture and storage. Hydrogen at some level is still a little bit of a moonshot, right? It, it's not commercial yet. Um, but policymakers are thinking five years ahead about the, the, the extra technology tools we're going to need in the toolkit in order to meet our social goals for carbon emissions reductions, because the current suite of technologies basically running along a business as usual doesn't do it. So, you know, they, they've intentionally kind of made a couple of moonshot type bets on these credits. Um, we're not going to get into it today, but the, you know, the bipartisan infrastructure bill also had quite a few new grant programs at the Department of Energy that are even more along those lines of, you know, supporting and kind of encouraging development of the pre-commercial. 
Hey, Heather, we've been talking a lot about the tools in this act, but we haven't really touched on the impact, which which I think, you know, is important. Um, we haven't done this modeling, um, but I'm going to quote some numbers from the Princeton University Zero Lab, and they have a tool called Repeat, which is the Rapid Energy Policy Evaluation and Analysis Toolkit. Um they their early projection is that the act would reduce annual carbon emissions in 2030 by 1 billion metric tons. Now, for comparison purposes, one metric ton of carbon is about half the size of a hot air balloon. So a, a hot air balloon would would represent about two tons of carbon. And um, uh, the repeat uh, model is predicting that it will be a billion of, of tons reduction in 2030. Um, and a cumulative reduction um, over the next decade through 2032 of 6.3 billion tons, right? Now, how accurate is that? Who, you know, who, who knows? Directionally pretty accurate. Um, this model is pretty widely, um, you know, regarded as being a, a good model. And uh, it's been quoted a lot in the popular press. But, but even if it's, if it's off by a factor of 50%, it's a lot of carbon, and it basically gets us two thirds of the way towards the 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 science based goal of reducing the U.S.'s carbon emissions by fifty percent over over uh, two thousand and nine, maybe it's two thousand and five, I forget which, but uh, by twenty thirty. So so this act will get us a lot of the way there, not all the way there, uh, but it certainly will be. Uh, uh, you know, good progress. And again, that goal is a science-based target to to keep the most uh, consequential impacts of climate change, um, to eliminate the most consequential impacts uh, by keeping um, temperature change below, I think, 2% Celsius. Yeah. And Casey, going back to your point about carrots you know, versus sticks, it's a bigger bend in the global emissions curve than was accomplished by the EU emissions trading system. Right. Yeah, that, I mean, it's a huge change. And I think, Casey, I do think it's helpful perspective to bring into the conversation. And you know, what's also interesting here is if we think about, again, I'm going to go back to companies because we have you know, this mostly controllers and their teams who are listening, lots well, of PwC people too, of course. And as they are thinking, what is my company going to do? How's my company going to be involved? How can we help? I think one of the things that's interesting here is traditionally, Matt, in order for companies to who weren't, let's say, directly involved to participate, you had to do these pretty complex tax equity structures or other types of financing structures. Now it's a whole new ballgame with some of these credits where maybe you can be, you know, I guess, involved in some of these projects in a different way. So can you touch on that? Sure. We, we hinted at credit monetization earlier. And, and honestly, that's what my phone's been ringing off the hook about for the last week um, are the new options, right? Um, so the, the, the Inflation Reduction Act includes two additional options for folks to make use of these tax incentives. One is what's called a direct pay feature. So a select group of entities, mostly tax exempts and rural electric cooperatives, can elect for, to take a direct pay option for any of the tax credits we've discussed today. And that effectively involves them converting the credit into a tax equivalent payment 
and then being able to get a current year refund from the government. So that's, that's how they get to the direct pay mechanic. A couple of the credits, notably the carbon capture and storage credit and the new credit for clean hydrogen, and then I guess also the advanced manufacturing property uh, credit, the 40, under 45X for producing um, you know, uh, clean energy goods, um, can be done as a direct pay credit by all taxpayers, not just the select few. Um, so, you know, it's my anticipation, for example, that in carbon capture and storage, that's going to be a very popular option um, that people will just take direct pay. The credits that can't be done as direct pay um, are, you can make a different election, which is what's called transferability. Well, what's transferability? It, it, it means exactly what it says. You can literally sell your tax credit to another taxpayer uh, for cash. And the cash is treated as tax-exempt income to you, not deductible by the buyer. Um, presumably, there'll be some discount, right? The person buying the credit is going to want a spread <laughs> of savings over just paying their own tax. Um, but that is going to be simpler in many ways than traditional structures that we've used to monetize credits by creating, you know, these structured tax equity partnerships or doing sale leaseback structures. Um, and, and I think that both of those options, both direct pay and um, transferability, are going to be quite popular. Um, that said, tax equity is dead. Long live tax equity, right? Um, in some circumstances, it may still make sense to structure a tax equity partnership, if it's a capital-intensive project where you also want to monetize the depreciation deductions for which direct pay and transferability are not available, it may still make sense to bundle everything into a tax equity partnership and do it all at once. Um, for reasons that would excite my partnership tax colleagues and not this audience, it, it may also be easier to um, establish a fair market value basis for the project that's being done if you do the partnership structuring rather than take a direct pay or transferability option. Um, but, you know, kind of just, just to sum up, we used to have two options for using these credits. Use them on your return or get into a funky structure so that somebody else can use them on their return. We now have four, right? You can use it on your return. Um, if it's a certain type of credit or you're a certain type of taxpayer, you can get a direct payment from the government. Option three is just sell the credit to somebody else without doing the funky structuring. And four, funky structuring is still available um, if you want to monetize attributes other than just the credits. Okay. So definitely a lot of accounting implications to those that we will not be covering today. But don't worry, we'll be following up with some additional thought leadership. So let me then change our focus here a little because we've hinted at this several times, but I think it's a really key aspect of the act and something I'd like to focus on. So what we've mentioned is that when you think climate, you think, quote, E. However, given a lot of the way these are structured, there's some huge social impacts to this law. And I think one of the things that actually, if I take a step back, is probably most appealing to many people about it. So Matt, perhaps you can share some of the background on what that is. And then Casey, I know you'll have some good perspective to add. Sure. So um, yeah, we again, we've, we've sort of danced around it a little bit, right? But most of these credits are available at a base rate and then at a higher rate that um, is unlocked if the project meets a prevailing wage standard, which is 
you know, basically the standard applicable to federal government contractors and also meets a requirement to provide apprenticeship and job training opportunities. Um, and, but when I say higher rate, it, it's five times the base credit rate. So for example, you know, the investment tax credit for solar under now enacted law is, is 6% for sort of projects that don't meet the wage and benefit requirements and 30% for those that do. It's pretty clear what you know, policymakers want you to do. Um, there are additional sort of bonus credits that can become available. Um, so take our solar example again. An additional 10% investment tax credit can be um, earned if the project is undertaken in basically a disadvantaged community or a community um, that's kind of going through the energy transition. So, for example, where a coal mine has closed or a coal power plant has been shut off, um, you, you can get bonus ITCs for doing a project in a location like that. You can get another bonus 10% for certifying to domestic content um, in the project that's being developed. So, again, you know, I talked about how it matters not only what you do, but where you do it and how. Um, you know, think about the way that stacks up. Um, on a, you know, again, our hypothetical solar project, if I build it with the right team of people in the right location and the right sourcing, I can get a 50% investment tax credit on that project. Yeah. You know, what I would add is there's also funding in here, uh, you know, often one of the, the criticisms of some of the renewable energy technologies out there is it was expensive. And, you know, it was those people that owned their own home that had the financial ability to invest in rooftop solar, had the financial ability to invest in electric vehicles that harvested these benefits. And those that maybe didn't own their own home or didn't have the economic ability uh, were left out. And um, the, the act um, includes a number of funding mechanisms to uh, provide for lower income communities and individuals access to some of these technologies. So it, it, it includes money for um, community solar. Um, uh, so if you don't own your own rooftop, you can still, uh, you know, community solar allows you to invest in a solar project that maybe um, is not on your building. Maybe it's, it's 50 miles away and you're buying a piece of that output. Um, uh so I think it does make many of these benefits more accessible to more of our economy, which I think is a positive thing. It, it certainly is designed to keep uh, many of these jobs in the U.S., which which is going to spur economic um, activity in the U.S., um, and it certainly is designed to provide clean energy jobs and technologies in areas that maybe are losing jobs uh, because of the reduction in fossil fuel production and specifically coal production. Um, so, you know, lots of good things on the social side and, and uh, you know, a very targeted um, effort to help those communities that are maybe on the fence line of facilities and have been most impacted from a health and welfare standpoint uh, because they were on the fence line of facilities to to improve the, the, the health and the lifestyle of those communities. Yeah. And to take another example, we haven't spent too much time in this conversation talking about the, the advanced energy manufacturing credit under Section 48C. 
Um, but that that's a $10 billion pot of tax credits available for um, manufacturing facilities that make in, you know, goods that are basically cleaner and greener compared to business as usual technologies. $4 billion worth of that $10 billion allocation is essentially earmarked for communities that have been affected by the energy transition um, or, you know, kind of other sort of lower income metropolitan statistical areas. Um, it's, it's clearly an attempt to try to drive new jobs into places where, you know, jobs will be displaced in the energy transition. Um, and, you know, you, you can also probably speculate about the political footprints of how something like that came about. Um, but it's there, um, again, you know, some, some of the preliminary conversations I've had with clients about, about this, you know, it, it really brings a renewed focus on site location decisions. Um, a lot of our clients have already been thinking, thinking about, you know, some of their siting decisions from an ESG lens more than they used to. Um, and this provides a financial benefit for doing it as well. Okay. So let me be a little skeptical here. And as I was listening to the social benefits, definitely the first one you talked about was wages. And I can see that's relatively easy. I can raise my workers' wages, and it's not going to take a lot of planning or time to do that. But some of the other aspects, particularly thinking about siting in a particular community, U.S. sourcing, for example, it's going to take a lot of time maybe to find the site or for U.S. manufacturing even to get ramped up before I can buy those materials. And so as you think about this, are we expecting there to be a lag before we start to see some of the benefit? It's just given this lead time we're going to need. And I mean, Casey spoke earlier about the difficulty of citing transmission lines, but even some of these projects, it's not like you're going to be able to immediately cite or permit them. Heather, I think that's one of the main constraints is going to be citing the facilities, uh, but there are others as well. A lot of these technologies are going to require like, transmission and pipeline capacity. So if you want to move hydrogen around, you may need hydrogen pipeline hubs. Um, uh, same thing for uh, uh, renewable and, and sustainable aviation fuel, right? You, you need transportation and, and storage facilities. Uh, so definitely siting and, and is going to be a piece of, of this issue. You know, another constraint is going to be um, – training up a workforce to build these technologies and to implement them. So um, it, it's, you know, as you know, we're in a labor shortage right now. There are more open jobs and there are people looking for jobs. Uh, this is going to spur economic activity, but it's going to be activity that takes a certain skill set. And I think there is money in this, in this act to train workers to get them ready, but the workers have to show up and people wanting training have to show up. So that's definitely a constraint. And then, you know, financing is going to be a constraint, uh, potentially, right? I, I, I don't think it will. I think the financing is going to turn up, uh, because it's going to see good and equitable rates of return. But, um, you know, there's going to be the financial markets have to get behind these, these projects as well. So there, there are a number of constraints out there. Um, that I think will take a little bit of um, thoughtful um, effort to address, but I think they're addressable. And, and I think the one thing we have found in, in our country is when a project makes economic sense, uh, we seem to find a way around those constraints. Although siting is tough, 
right? It is really tough to build anything anywhere right now. <clears throat> and uh, that siding is going to be that. I think that's going to be the toughest constraint to get over. It, it clearly helps, right? At, um, you know, it, it, you know, I think what Casey said resonates a lot with some of the early conversations I've had. Um, you know, the, the renewable energy developer community is kind of concerned how many people they can actually find to make apprentices, <laughs> or you know, on these on these jobs uh, in a in a market where you know the people have a lot of choices about where they want to work. Um, the, there, there's some good faith effort language in the statute that people are probably going to go want to get some clarity about from the IRS about, you know, like, Hey, what happens if I go out and recruit and nobody shows up? Um, you know, do I still get, do I get penalized? Um, and then, you know, on the siting thing, there, there, there are a few things that you can do in the shorter term, um, that, you know, have a really powerful effect and don't run into the siting issue and, and retrofitting existing renewables sites with storage to me, feels like one of the easier ones because all of the environmental permitting for the project's already done. You've got the land. Um, <laughs> you know, the, the storage arrays tend not to take up that much incremental space. That, that feels like, you know, something that could, to use, to use an old 2009 era phrase, that feels like something that could be shovel ready in 2023. You know, some of the other manufacturing facilities, some of the other, you know, larger scale projects you may not really start to see the tangible benefit of until 24 or 25, but knowing that there's a 10 year window to plan into, and you don't have to worry about, you know, credits rolling on and off, uh, will make people willing to start. All right. Well, I think we could probably keep talking about this for, you know, another hour, at least, if not more, but in the interest of bringing this to a close, and I, I know I can have, I'll have you guys back to talk further. Just curious, maybe some final thoughts that you would have as you reflected on this and, you know, as, as you're thinking about our audience and how they may want to be thinking about it. So maybe Matt, I'll go to you first. Yeah. And, you know, I think we hinted at it over the course of this conversation, but don't assume these incentives are just for people in the energy business, right? Um, th there's a deep roster of incentives here across a variety of areas where most of corporate America has some form of emissions footprint. And anybody who's actively trying to manage that footprint or has an ESG goal or ESG agenda should start to think about that. Um, you know, go back to your own corporate social responsibility report, go to the commitments you've made to the public about net zero, about reducing, you know, energy use, and then sort of reflect on, okay, what's in this bill? How could we use these credits to help pay for that agenda? Um, and then I'm a tax guy. You invited a tax guy to this party. So the last thing I will say is invite the tax guy to your party. Um, you know, the next time you have a meeting about the ESG agenda, or your CapEx agenda, you know, to on lower carbon initiatives, you might want to think about having the tax department show up because they can bring you some help <laughs> on achieving these objectives in a very tangible way. All right. Definitely good advice. And Casey, how about from your perspective? Um, look, I think it's going to be exciting. This audience is typically financially oriented folks. I would start thinking about how do I gear up to start modeling the development of projects that that my operating folks may want to pursue. Um, 
what are some of the accounting ramifications? You know, are these going to be considered tax credits or are they going to be considered grants? And, and, you know, how are they going to flow through my financial statements? What sort of documentation requirements do I need to pull together to substantiate that I've met the labor requirements and some of the locational requirements? So there, there's definitely, I mean, I think this is incredibly exciting that it's going to spur, um, tremendous growth and scale in these clean energy technologies that have been proven to work and they need to be scaled up to become more cost effective. But there's going to be all kinds of ancillary support processes that need to be built around them, which again, how exciting, you know, to be contributing to something that is going to grow the economy, is going to, re- is going to reduce carbon emissions, um, have a real impact on society and people. But, you know, there is going to be, um, you know, true hard work, uh, that, that has to be put in place around, around these projects. And, uh, uh, but I think, I think at least our team is excited to have an impact and excited to work on these projects that are, you know, finally coming to fruition of many of the things we've been talking about, um, needing for a long time. So Casey, to that final point, one thing I really like here is we're finally talking about action not just reporting. And perhaps this way, companies are going to have some positive things to report. And I think it'll be good to see some business change happening. So Matt, Casey, I really appreciate all your insight. I definitely think this is a conversation we'll need to continue, particularly over the next days and weeks. I know we're going to know a lot more about some of the different incentives, how they're going to play out and how people are going to use them. And I definitely look forward to having you both back. Thanks so much. Thank you, Heather. That does it for today. Join me back here next week for new podcast episodes. On Tuesday, we're continuing our toolkit series focused on compensation. We'll also have another special sector focus Wednesday episode for you. And on Thursday, we're finally planning to hit that August hiatus for the next few weeks. So that you never miss any of our audio content, follow the PwC Accounting Podcast series wherever you listen to your podcasts. And to stay up to date on all our latest accounting and reporting news, sign up for our newsletter at viewpoint.pwc.com. From Thought Leadership at PwC, I'm Heather Horn. Thanks for tuning in. This podcast is brought to you by PwC, all rights reserved. PwC refers to the U.S. member firm or one of its subsidiaries or affiliates, and they sometimes refer to the PwC network. Each member firm is a separate legal entity. Please see www.pwc.com structure for further details. This podcast is for general information purposes only and should not be used as a substitute for consultation with professional advisors.